Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Final lecture this term. Uh, when and where and if next term uh, is not within our uh, control. But uh, alhamdulillah, uh, I thought that uh, since the, uh, even the politicians have been going into that thing that is perhaps very foreign to their nature, self-isolation, uh, we would raise the topic which uh, sometimes appears following a prophetic uh, precedent in our civilization, uh, which is referred to sometimes as Ozla, sometimes as Khalwa. Imam al-Ghazali in his Ihya al-Ladin has two books which sit next to each other. One is the Kitab Adab al-Ozla, and the other is the Kitab Adab al-Sohba. The Kitab Adab al-Sohba, the proprieties, the courtesies of keeping company with others, friendship and so forth, some of you may already have looked at because uh, Al-Marhum Mukhtar Holland translated that book as The Duties of Brotherhood um, 30 years or so ago, and it's become a kind of recurrent bestseller. But the book that's next door to it, which is perhaps a more kind of tough love in its approach, the book of the courtesies of isolation, uh, hasn't yet found uh, its winning English translator. But this is a dimension of the spiritual life which takes its... Uh, point of departure, of course, from the original state in which he was, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when the first verse came to him, iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, and this was his tahannuth, his isolation for devotion in the ghari hira' on his own revelation began uh, in his uh, solitude. And it has uh, been a tradition revived periodically in the history of the Ummah uh, by those who feel that their spiritual development requires taking time out, being mindful, going into a retreat. It's a part of most people's spiritual adhesion and progress that sometimes they take a step back from the hurly-burly of social life and uh, contemplate the eternal verities alone, and this is the principle known as khalwa or ozla, solitude, seclusion. So if we have to go into uh, 14 days, they say, not 40 days, but 14 days, uh, there's things that the believer can do which the uh, materialist consumer can't do. They say the wait list for a podo may be up to seven days, if you can imagine uh, what a materialistic society would do while waiting for its deliveries for those seven days. But we have things to do, and our tradition has uh, given us plenty of uh, rich reflections on this principle of khalwa or ozla. So I thought that what we would do would be to look at somebody from one of the orders of our inner life, the life of Ihsan, the life of tasawwuf, that inner half of the religion, uh, which is particularly directed to using the possibilities of uh, retreat, of isolation, of solitude. Now, of course, just as the Holy Prophet وسلم, does not spend his prophetic career in the cave of Hira, and that wouldn't have been uh, prophetically possible, given the qum fa'andir, arise and warn, 
He has to warn others. He has to be in society. He has to be in the jalwa. There is the khalwa and there is the jalwa, the solitude and the openness. Uh, similarly, in our spiritual heritage, it has not been uh, the case that those who take their inward purification seriously have just headed for the hills permanently and contemplated their navel in some Himalayan cave. That is the way of some Indic religions, the way of some Buddhist traditions, the way of many Christian traditions, uh, the Rahbaniya, but it is not our way, which is a way of sociality, of sohba. So we do find, nonetheless, that people in the course of the complex tides and ups and downs of their spiritual advancement sometimes do need to take a step back uh, and be on their own, uh, to find their own space in order to keep out all of those endless distractions, the materials, the papers flowing across their desk. And nowadays, the distractions are more numerous than ever because uh, if you have a, a tablet or a mobile phone, uh, the whole world can distract your attention at a time of its choosing. Sometimes we do need to switch off and get away, and we all have that uh, impulse and desire very commonly, but unfortunately usually what we do is we pack the tablet with us and then we take a wide-bodied jet to the Maldives or something, uh, perhaps for a spa retreat or a pampering weekend or some other external thing. It's not really the same. Uh, we may find it even difficult not to check emails and we're not really in a state of khulu, a state of emptiness. Khalwa really means kind of being empty, there being nothing out there to uh, distract the focus and the, the pellucid clarity and calmness of the mind. So technology, as um, many have observed, tends to make us more anxious and less focused. In any case, uh, the Islamic tradition has inevitably been aware of this and has always sought a proper balance between, on the one hand, the need to be prophetically engaged in the world, which we are called upon to heal and to improve, uh, and on the other hand, the need that we have to discover the more important horizon which lies within. Rectifying the world outside doesn't necessarily improve or solve our inward problems. But if we solve our inward problems, to that extent, we will be able to deal positively with the outside world and we will be more agreeable, less egotistic, less selfish people. So the inner horizon is more important and takes priority. Just as the Meccan period is before the Medinan period, uh, which is an expansion of it and not some, some kind of abrogation. So this principle of Khalwa turns out to be important. And the uh, spiritual way that I will be looking at uh, today will be a branch of the famous Khalwati Tariqa. There's a whole Tariqa named after Khalwa even though many of them do it to a greater or lesser extent, um, depending on the particular spiritual path that their founders uh, are inspired to uh, systematize. But the Khalwati Tariqa is particularly famous for this institution of Khalwa. And if you've seen Shems Friedlander's, may Allah give him health, uh, his uh, film that he made about the Khalwatis of Cairo, you'll see that in their lodge, which is still there in Cairo, despite the best efforts of 
secular mediocrity to shut down such treasures. Uh, they do have the ritual of going into the little rooms and uh, spending time there and food is brought to them. They come out again, of course. The sheikh ritually takes off the seal and they come out, but uh, it's a process of transformation uh, akin to a kind of e'atikaf. And for some spiritual ways, this getting away from distraction is particularly important. Uh, you might have seen also uh, Michaela Özelsel's book, 40 Days. Uh, she's a German Muslim member of a... Uh, uh, Istanbul Khalwati Tariqa, and she just records, it's her diary, 40 days, what it was like, um, how difficult it was, the door sealed, she's in this flat in a slum in Istanbul, and uh, she has to deal, the first few days seem to be dealing with the cockroaches. Uh, it's an austere experience, and it's in winter time, and then she talks about her prayer life develops and what she's like um, when she comes out of it afterwards. Uh, it's interesting present-day uh, Western take on this, uh, this transformative experience. Reflect also on the fact that it's 40 days. The chile literally means 40. And our English word quarantine comes from the French quarantine, which is 40. In the Middle Ages, in pre-modern times, it was thought that 40 was a number of transformation, expiation, and a new beginning. Even in the Bible, Bani Israel, they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, and uh, the flood covers the earth for 40 days, 40 nights. Um, and of course, Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, receives his prophecy in his 40th year, this Arba'in is something. The number is significant in Islam and its numerical value. For those who are interested in such traditions, is the letter Mim, uh, which has uh, a specific Muhammadan significance. So quarantine, yeah, and it has this inward dimension as well as an outward dimension in that during these 40 days, or the 40 consecutive prayers with a congregation that makes you one of them, that's why people really want to do that in Medina, uh, is enough to trigger a certain kind of indefinable but genuinely experienced metanoia, inner turning, a tauba, and makes people different at the end of it. Ramadan plus the 10 days of, of Shawwal, the 40, it's an established thing in our tradition as well. So quarantine is a kind of secular version of that about outward sicknesses, not inward ones which have to declare themselves and then be fought. So this Khalwati Tariqa, a branch ultimately of the Qadiri Tariqa, known uh, for its origins somewhere in uh, the wilds of uh, the Caucasus, uh, but a tariqa that spread particularly amongst the uh, Western Turks. You don't get it so much in Iran, Central Asia, Uzbekistan, subcontinent. I don't know if it exists there at all. It kind of spread uh, to become one of the great, uh, almost sultanic tariqas of the Ottoman Empire and particularly connected to the ulama, as we'll see with the story that I'm going to uh, trace today. So I'm going to be talking about one of Turkey's best-known kind of spiritual heroes. Uh, in a museum, we still have his turban. Somewhat the worst for wear, but that is the Taj, the turban that he used to wear, and it always has a kind of spiritual symbolism. The number of the stripes, uh, the dilim slices, like slices of a cake, indicate all kinds of symbolic things. Uh, and this is the, 
the Taj of the Tariqa, the sub-Tariqa of the Khalwatiya that Aziz Mahmoud Hudai, who I'm going to speak about mainly today, uh, was the leading exponent of writing some of Turkey's most popular uh, poetry. Uh, and so this is the Taj of the Jalwati Tariqa. Each Tariqa has its own particular symbolic uh, piece of headgear. So Aziz Mahmoud Hudai is still a uh, household name, really, in Turkey. Uh, and you'll see if you've got a copy of my Turkish Sacred Songbook that I've translated some of his pieces there, and I've given a few other examples in the little handouts that were pushed around earlier. And we'll talk about his orientation, his understanding of Khalwa, and why he had such a huge impact on the Muslim society of his day in the course of this lecture. Um, he was born at a place called Kochhisar, which is kind of a couple of hours' drive south of Ankara now, um, which is uh, a kind of depressed area now. It has a salt lake, it's very high, extreme climate, agriculture is marginal, a lot of young people are leaving, the population's been going down pretty consistently for the last 50 years, and it must have been quite an austere and wind-blown place uh, even then. Uh, but he uh, went to complete his early tahsil, his early Islamic education, uh, at a place called Silivri Hisar, Sivri Hisar, which is to the north of Ankara, so it must have been a, a few days' ride on a mule to get there. And this is a much more interesting place. Well, <laughs> maybe this symbolises the Khalwati way. That doesn't look like a very great mosque, and most people haven't heard of Sivri Hisar. Um, it's a small place, maybe 10, 15,000 people. But this is where he was studying, in the madrasa attached to this mosque, and this is the mosque where he would have said his prayers. This is the Ulu Jami, the great mosque of Sivri Hisar, which is old, as you can see, 1232, so that's substantially before the Ottomans. This is still in Seljuk times. Uh, but when you go inside, um, it's much more interesting because it's a wooden mosque. Basically, it's using uh, the enormous spruce trees which covered central Anatolia at the time uh, in order to prop up a wooden roof. I think there's 62 columns altogether. Uh, and it's the pride and joy of the people of Sevr Hisar. Um, I'm not sure if our aspect ratio is correct. Does that look correct? Anyway, uh, this is the uh, interior and the Seljuk style mihrab, pretty intact since the days of its foundation. Yeah, we're pulling it sideways a bit, but never mind. So the policy now with historic mosques in Turkey is to get rid of the sort of fitted carpet and to replace them with proper kilims or kind of look-alike, so you get a better sense of what the mosque would originally have looked like. So uh, there you have something pretty identical, I would say, to the mosque in which he would, as a little boy, have uh, studied Quran and Hadith. That's the ladies' gallery. Um, enormous trees. The Ottoman Navy used them for ships' masts. That's towards the back, ladies' galleries upstairs. So it really is all made of wood. That's the minbar, very beautiful thing. That's the original minbar of the structure. Um, okay, so then he leaves and goes to this place. In Istanbul, Küçük Ayasofya, Little Ayasofya, which is also based around a former Byzantine church, 
which about 100 years after the conquest, when the neighborhood became Muslim, was turned into a mosque and a madrasa built around it. Um, uh, and this is where he continues his education at a higher level. The policy then was that uh, education was all free. And if you were promising, you'd be sent to a larger town, to a more significant madrasa. And as we'll see, he continues to maintain a connection to this madrasa for the rest of his, uh, the rest of his, um, of his life. Uh, this is kind of his spiritual home in the city of Istanbul. So he studies there, uh, and he studies mainly tafsir, hadith, and fiqh. Later on, he becomes a lecturer in those subjects. So very much kind of following the path of the ulama. This is what the rooms of the students look like nowadays. The, all the madrasas were closed, of course, by Ataturk. So this is now a kind of craft centre. So each of the students' rooms has somebody in there making metalwork or things for tourists. Uh, it's a nice, nice place to visit. They have some good craftsmen there. So he spends uh, uh, maybe 15 years studying at this madrasa. And then uh, at the age of 28, he moves to uh, the former capital of Edirne, which is to the north of Istanbul. And the last few weeks, you've been seeing pictures of refugees hanging around near Edirne, which is on the Greek-Bulgarian border, and getting themselves shot by the Greek army for their troubles. But back then, it was at the center of the empire rather than the edge of Turkey. And he uh, begins a junior teaching job here at the Selimiye Madrasa, which was uh, one of the three or four most prestigious madrasas in the whole of the Ottoman world, not excepting uh, the Arab world, which by this time, of course, has joined uh, the empire, and was on the, uh, the main road, Orteyolo, the ancient Roman Via Ignatia, which goes from Constantinople up to the Ottoman frontier, which at this time was um, uh, around central Hungary. So beyond this, there was an enormous area of the Darul Islam. And his followers and his tariqa, much of its subsequent spread was actually in the Balkan area, particularly a town called Filibe, which is nowadays Plovdiv, um, where some of the major later exponents of the Jalvati tariqa uh, came from, and which had one of the biggest centers for the, for the order until Plovdiv um, was taken over by the Bulgarian state, I guess, in uh, 1878, something like that. So uh, we think of this as a marginal place, but the Greek border is only about four miles from this madrasa. Uh, but back then, really very much part of the Dar al-Islam. A lot of the Syrian scholars, incidentally, have, uh, following their exile from Syria, moved into Edirne and revived one or two of the old madrasas. So, the silver lining of the catastrophe in Syria is that this place is becoming a place for scholars again. So uh, constructed, of course, by the great Sinan uh, for uh, Sultan Salim II. And uh, the uh, Selimiyah Mosque is actually the biggest mosque in the Ottoman world. By this time, Sinan thought that it really perfected these techniques of building these absolutely gigantic um, domes. And so uh, he built what was at the time the biggest dome in the world for the Selimiyah Mosque. And it's uh, still a wonder for those who uh, venture outside Istanbul on their trips to Turkey. So he's a mu'aid, which is a kind of teaching assistant uh, under somebody called Mu'aidzade uh, Ramazan Efendi, who's one of the big kalam experts in the Ottoman Empire at the time, who's in charge of this madrasa. A mu'aid is somebody who is the kind of 
chief assistant to a scholar who, for instance, writes things down for him, organises things for him, but also, if the class is very big, the Mu'aid's job is to spare the teacher from projecting his voice right to the back of what could be a very big darshane or teaching room, and he repeats what the teacher says about halfway down the class so that people at the back can hear. And this is actually regarded as a privilege because it's a way of forcing a star pupil really to concentrate to make sure that he's listening verbatim to what the teacher is saying. And many of the great ulama of Islam have started their careers as mu'aids. It's not a kind of secretary, it's something much more distinguished. And the assumption is that if the teacher is sick, um, the mu'aid will step in, his, his uh, locum, as it were. So he's with this Nazar Zadeh Ramazan Effendi, but at the same time, in Edirne, he is in touch with the Khalwati Tariqa, which I started off talking about, uh, in the form of somebody called Muslihiddin Effendi. The Khalwati are very widespread in the European provinces. Why? Because they're well known as a Tariqa of Da'wah. So the idea is the Ottomans go in and they conquer Sarajevo or something, but the population is still non-Muslim. The Islamization doesn't take place through the jurists, the Qadi goes there just to give judgment amongst Muslims and Christians have their own system and he doesn't involve himself in that unless there's a case involving a Muslim and a Christian, in which case the Sharia court has jurisdiction, like a mixed court. Uh, but in terms of actually spreading Islam to the population, we're not going to come to hadith classes or the madrasa or hear a khutbah, but the non-Muslim population, it's the tariqahs who go out to do that into the kind of wild lands, the remote villages, the bears and the wolves and so forth. And Khalwati are one of the key, uh, as it were, colonizer de uh, dervish orders in the Balkans. So they very big in southern Hungary, for instance. They begin what's now the Kraina area of southern uh, Croatia, Dobroja, southern Ukraine. Uh, it's a big tariqa in the Crimea. They're kind of frontiersmen, and this is always um, part of the, the tradition of the tariqa that the sheikh sends his disciples out to these uh, rather remote and exotic and difficult places as part of their training. Uh, so they will establish lodges with the help maybe of a local Muslim businessman who gives them some land and uh, off they go. So, uh, the, and we saw this when we had the lecture on Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar and the Islamization of Central Asia and Southern Kazakhstan came about through his Awqaf in Samarkand and his sending out human and financial resources to sponsor the da'wah in those remote, difficult steppelands of uh, the centre of Central Asia. So, Muslim Haddin Effendi is taking him under the wing for his spiritual direction. This is perfectly normal in the Ottoman world. You have your hadith teacher, but you also have your teacher for the inner horizon. Uh, somebody <coughs> who is going to help sort out the, the demon within. Um, but he leaves Edirne when his uh, teacher, Nazar Zadeh, Ramazan Effendi, gets a job in the Arab world and is sent to Cairo as the chief Qadi of Egypt. So it must have been quite a journey from Edirne to Cairo at the time. And it seems that they went by land. So he follows him as his assistant. And the Qadi doesn't have a Mu'aid because he doesn't teach. He has a deputy called a Na'ib. Again, who's his kind of assistant and presents the cases. Sometimes we'll do some investigation because there isn't really a kind of police force. So often the judge has to investigate witnesses and evidence himself. It's a complex investigatory job. 
in Sharia. So he goes with him to far off Cairo, which is a flourishing Ottoman province. There's the palace um, of the Ottoman governor, as seen, I guess, at the end of the 18th century. This is Shubra Palace, um, which was the nerve centre of Muhammad Ali's, basically Albanian, the royal family of Egypt, <coughs> basically of Albanian uh, origin. Uh, and uh, it was ruined for many years, as are so many wonderful monuments in Cairo. But recently, thankfully, uh, somebody decided, well, let's rebuild it as a kind of nice hotel. So you can actually visit this Ottoman, rather magnificent palace um, in Cairo. And it's actually been restored rather nicely to its kind of slightly gilt Louis says sort of Versailles type interiors with mirrors and gold furniture everywhere. Maybe not to everybody's taste, um, but an interesting example of westernized uh, Ottoman taste uh, in Cairo. So he is there um, as quite a senior official in this Ottoman province, where he again connects with the Khalwatis, because they have a branch, and I mentioned Shem's Fiedlander's film. Uh, they still exist in, uh, in Cairo and in Egypt generally. Khalwatiya is big there. They exist in the Hejaz as well. Um, Abdullah Faraj, who was one of the great muezzins of the prophetic mosque in Medina when I was there, was from the Khalwati Tariqa and had a <coughs> truly astonishing voice. I remember I was once at a uh, molded gathering uh, near Mount Uhud. It was out in the open at night with trees and so forth. And because it was in the open, they were using speakers, which doesn't always do wonders for the sensitivity of the voice. And then great excitement. There's hundreds of people there. Abdullah Faraj has come. He's one of the great wazins. He's in retirement. A little old African guy. And he sits down. They give him the microphone. He says, I don't need a microphone. Need a microphone. And he says, the voice comes from love, he said, Minal Mahabba. And this is just a, he said, it's like a 500 amp amplifier. He knew about these things, but my Mahabba is 5,000 amps, because I love the Holy Prophet. And this little man belts it out, and I kind of, wow, really amazing. He was one of the secrets of Medina. I expect that he has passed on now, but. Uh, yeah, he was Khalwati, very much from the Medina Khalwatis. So in Cairo, of course, you can find the, the Khalwati Tariqa as most of the Ottoman orders. So he encounters this Khalwati Sheikh called Karim al-Din. Uh, and Karim al-Din is associated with the big Khalwati center in Cairo, which is now, like so many other place, places there, in ruins. Uh, Ibrahim Gulsheni was from originally Nagorno-Karabakh, a really remote part of uh, the Caucasus, a kind of ecstatic, difficult, wandering dervish, a little bit like Rumi, who would produce extempore these amazing poems, but in a kind of uh, Eastern Turkish. And his disciples would write them down, say his divan, uh, not Mesnavi, but he's called the Ma'navi. The Divani Ma'navi of Ibrahim Gulsheni is regarded as one of the masterpieces of classical Turkish literature. But because he was a very kind of ecstatic type, Jalal rather than Jamal, more like Shamsi Tabriz. Uh, the tradition in Turkey is that you never venture to publish this book. And if you do, they say your house will burn down. Apparently a pasha in the 19th century thought he'd do a pious work by publishing the book. Halfway through his house fell down, burnt down, so he decided to stop 
It's, it's um, a kind of specialised text with a lot of haqqa'iq, mujarrada, and ecstatic things, and really hard to understand, even if you know that very convoluted ancient type of Turkish. In any case, he makes his way to Cairo. He's buried in this place, uh, which is a jewel, uh, maybe a world heritage site if it doesn't fall down first. Um, unfortunately, the Egyptian elite like to spend money on shopping malls and things. And these wonders are just left to cave in. Uh, but uh, the place is still there. He's buried near, I think it's the Babs Wailer, southern gate of Cairo. And it's certainly worth, um, you can usually find somebody there to get a key. You give them some money and you can wander around. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, a splendid place. So he spends time in this place with this Karimuddin. And then with Karimuddin, for reasons which we don't really understand, um, some kind of spiritual companionship, the two together then leave the Qadi's office and go to Bursa. And Hudai, uh, Bursa is, of course, uh, the great... Before Edirne, it was the Ottoman capital. So the Ottomans start off in this place called Sot, and then Iznik becomes the capital, and then Edirne on the European side becomes the capital, and then finally, when it's captured, Constantinople becomes the capital. So Bursa, as a former capital, is full of amazing wonders, and the Ulujami, the great Friday mosque of Bursa. Maybe some of you have visited a great Hatzergisi, uh, a great exhibition of calligraphy, um, most of which is from uh, Wafiq Ahmed Pasha's time after an earthquake in the... Uh, middle of the 19th century, so this is a sign of what it looked like before the earthquake, I guess. Now, Hudai is now age 33 and uh, gets his first major break as an academic. So he becomes Muderis, chief lecturer, at one of the main madrasas of Bursa, al-Madrasa al-Farhadiya. And he stays there for three years. Uh, and during which time his former fiqh teacher, Ramazan Effendi, dies. And then he goes on to get uh, the job of becoming the Qadi, whose court is actually held here in the big mosque of uh, Bursa. Very often the Qadi would have his own house where judgment would be given, or uh, there would be a specific <coughs> mahkamah or law court. But very often a judge, particularly if there was a large number of people who wanted to uh, attend a case, would hold court actually in the mosque itself um, and that was thought to inspire witnesses and others to take the proceeding seriously and even to tell the truth. So this is the Jami Atiq, the old mosque of Bursa. During this time this kind of Ghazalian relationship between his outward career and his inward development starts to break surface and uh, according to his biographers he starts to see a series of dreams and these dreams are unsettling. You know, as a Qadi, he deals with the reality of society. And the Qadi is supposed to have certain key virtues, uh, the first of which is marhama. You have to have compassion for people. Because the Qadi is supposed to be a healer of society. So he sees a dream of the Yawm al-Qiyamah, a very terrifying dream, uh, in which the Muslims are being judged, and he sees quite a lot of the kind of respectable people, the scholars and judges and dignitaries and pashas, uh, being judged uh, very fiercely, uh, singled out by the angels of punishment. 
who seem to be going to the mass of the Muslims with hooks of fire, dragging out all of these distinguished people in order to take them away to hell. This is a kind of unsettling dream. So he's going through this kind of inner uh, transformation or unsettled time. And then, according to all of his biographers, uh, the first strange kind of supernatural event of his career takes place when a woman comes to his court with a case which is very weird. She says, last year, my husband says, I really want to go to Hajj this year. And if I don't, I swear I will divorce you irrevocably. It will be the threefold divorce and that will be it. And he does this presumably to incentivize himself to go on the Hajj. And she says, he's still around. Uh, I don't want to be divorced. Am I divorced? Is there some way around this? Kazi, Hazrat Lirius, can we deal with this? Um, uh, now, the man is brought, and the man said, well, I have been on Hajj, and I came back. And the woman said, no, you haven't. You've been here. Uh, and then the man says, well, I'm a disciple of the best-known Wali of Bursa, Uftade, Hazret Liri. And we do these things differently. It took me just two days. I went there, and he describes Arafat and the Jamarat and all of those things that the Qadi is listening. Came back just in two days. Anything's possible for God. So what's the, the judge supposed to do? He doesn't really want to divorce them because of this rash promise, but is this acceptable evidence <coughs> in Sharia? <coughs> Can he possibly accept this? So he says, well, I'm going to wait until the, bursa, the real Bursa Hajjis come back from the Hajj, and then we'll talk to them and say, how long does it take, and what's the journey like, and did you see this guy? So they come, and he summons some of them as witnesses, and they say, yeah, we did see that guy in, in Mecca. He was in his ihram, and we saw all of these things. The judge still doesn't think this is enough evidence. And then they say, oh, he gave us some of his stuff to bring back uh, with us as an amana. And they show the qadi that they've got some of this man's property, and the wife says, yeah, that's his stuff. So this is an example of Allah's breaking of norms, kind of breaking the norms of the law court. Is this admissible evidence? What's he supposed to do? This is a kind of Khidr and Musa type situation where the normal laws of ethics don't seem to be working. So he gives his judgment. <coughs> he says he rules that the marriage is still valid and the woman's not divorced, even though it seems like a kind of impossible case. So he's having these dreams um, and he encounters this strange guy who's been with Uftade, who seems to kind of have seven league books or something that he went on Hajj and came back. Nowadays, of course, we have the Express Hajj, which you might have heard of. If you're super rich, you fly in and you just go for the afternoon to Arafat uh, and basically that's it. You fly out again and then you pay a sum of money. That's the light Hajj and there's people who choose to do it like that. But back then, of course, this would have to be a karama, a miraculous intervention. And of course, belief in the Miracles of the saints is part of Sunni doctrine. 
the basic Azhari creed that you memorize when you're... The Azhar Madrasa says, and it affirmed that the awliya can have miracles. Whoever rejects this just hit, his, hit the wall with his words, something like that. So it's part of Sunni doctrine that miracles are not just prophetic, but that uh, Allah can break the normal rules of cause and effect at the hands of certain other individuals as well. Um, he talks to his ulama colleagues about this case, and they don't really know what to make of it. And so he starts to re-establish his connection with the Khalwatis and also the Naqshbandis of the city of Bursa, um, which is also a great centre, Emir Sultan of a Central Asian Samarkand uh, Naqshbandi lineage. This is what his tomb and mosque and madrasa looks like today, and it's another huge magnet for visitors and pilgrims. This is a very uh, definitely <coughs> Naqshbandi place. <coughs> But of course, the guy he really wants to meet is this Uftade, uh, who he's seen around because Uftade used to be the muezzin of the main mosque <coughs> in Bursa, Bursa. He's a well-known person, has this amazing voice. Uh, and Uftade uh, has his own story, which is really just as interesting as Aziz Mahmoud Tudai's story. Um, and he has his own teke, zawiya, darga, khanqa, uh, which has recently been restored, happily. It was a ruin, thanks to Ataturk's uh, reforms, when all of these places were closed. There used to be hundreds and thousands of them. But this was his, uh, and it's been restored and turned into quite a nice kind of cultural centre. The tariqa is defunct, but I think on Sundays they do have a dhikr that some local jamaat um, performs, but it's not really part of the original line because that was broken by Arafat. So there it is in the Molla Fenari district of uh, Bursa. Molla Fenari, uh, one of the first really great uh, Ottoman scholars in this district, is named after him. Um, he was Mufti of the Ottoman Empire in the time of Murad II. Mufti al-Anam, they called him, because he was like Mufti of the whole world. Anybody could um, come to uh, get a fatwa from him. Um, he has this uh, book, Fusul al-Bada'i'a fi Usul al-Shara'i'a, which is an important book on the kind of philosophical and ethical groundings of Usul al-Fiqh. Um, and he has Sharh Usul al-Pazdawi, which is on Ilm al-Kalam, basically an exoteric figure, as you'd expect from a Sheikh al-Islam, um, taught in Jerusalem, Cairo, etc. Qadi of Bursa, <laughs> famous story about him is that there was a law case, again in the same place that Hudai is giving judgment in, Fenari is there, and one of the defendants says, well, I'm going to call as my next witness the Sultan, Yildirim Sultan Bayezid, Bayezid the Thunderbolt, terror of the world, this Ottoman Sultan, he's just coming, he said, he's going to testify on my behalf. And Mullah Fenari says, there are certain rumours about this sultan uh, that he's been taking land that doesn't belong to him, and therefore, according to Sharia, I can't accept him as an upright witness. Everybody kind of looks around, but he's adamant. And so the sultan gets to the mosque and is told this and has to go back to the palace again. So uh, these people are not like the muftis of today, and they get a 
email from the Raisul Jumhuria or somebody saying, we want this fatwa, please, and they'll kind of magically the fatwa appears. These are people who will, even though the sultan is kind of the terror of the world, it's not a good witness, send him away, it's like personal insult, but he doesn't care. So Mullah Fanari, a very important kind of person for early Ottoman religion. And this is his district, uh, and it was in this district that Hazreti Ufade, Uftade builds this uh, amazing place. And there's, uh, you can walk around now, since it's been opened, I think, nine to five, you can get, uh, you can wander around and you can see where the area was for the, for the women. You can see the public fountain. Uh, you can see the, the Chilehane, because this is from the Khalwati uh, tradition. Chilehane is w the room where you go into retreat, or there might be a whole line of rooms. Um, and there's uh, some of the uh, uh, tekes in Bosnia still have this tradition. You go up to these remote places on mountain tops, and they have these little uh, windowless uh, rooms, and they bring you food that tend to be particularly busy during Ramadan. Um, so, yeah, and another thing that they're doing with this place now, since it's no longer a Sufi center, is that it's a big place for hefs. And they have uh, kids from uh, particularly Central Asian countries. And they've got a little walk, so they subsidize kids from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, wherever, to come here and, and complete their hef. So it's nice that this place has been uh, resurrected. Um, it was kind of a car park, and part of it was used as a metal workshop. Um, so uh, these things are slowly coming back to life, but kind of in terms of the exoteric function. Um, <coughs> so uh, Hudai has already asked around about his dreams. Who can interpret them, these alarming, depressing dreams? So he goes to somebody called Eskiji Mehmet Dede, who's another famous dream interpreter, dream interpreter of uh, Borso. He says, uh, those dreams, I'm not qualified to interpret. But uh, he says, Babi Qadar, the door of destiny for you is Uftade. Iftade Dede, the same guy who had trained this strange dervish who does this express hajj. The whole thing seems problematic, but he seeks him out. So he goes to the, the uh, Tekke of Iftade, and actually there's a nice book now about Iftade by Paul Balonfa, who's translated some of his poems, The Nightingale of the Garden of Love, um, definitely worth looking at, and uh, quite beautiful poems, still very well known in Turkey. So who is Uftade? Maybe the second or the third best-known wali of the city of Bursa of all time. He is uh, from uh, a Bayrami branch of the Qadiriya. The Qadiriyas of all the tariqas are the one that's branched and sub-branched into all kinds of subdivisions, and the Khalwatis are one. Uh, the Bayrami are a specifically Turkish branch from uh, Haji Bayram Veli, who's buried in Ankara, and his complex, again, has been recently done up and it's a nice place to buy books and take your children. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting building because it was originally a temple of Caesar Augustus, and there's still the big Roman thing there, and the other half is the kind of early Ottoman building. It's quite, quite remarkable, and you can go underneath and there's tunnels, and again, you can see the rooms where people would go for their self-isolation. 
so Iftade is from this tradition, Hajar Bayram Veli, who reinvigorates the uh, Qadri Tariqa and becomes the teacher of Aqshams al-Din, who is the Murshid of Sultan Mehmed Fatih. And there's the famous picture which you see on kind of calendars on the walls of kebab shops in Istanbul. Uh, there is the gates of Istanbul, the moment of glory, flags of course, uh, banners of various kinds, and two men are coming through the gate. Uh, and there's one is on the horse and the other is leading the horse. But of course it's the sheikh who's on the horse and Sultan Mehmet Fatih kind of humbly leading the reins because he knew that this victory was the result of uh, Aqsham Siddin's teaching. So the Bayram is a kind of Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, Wahdat al-Wujud oriented branch of the Qadiriya. Uh, and this place originates as the Bayrami. The Bayrami in Turkey now don't exist very much, um, but in Bosnia they're still um, active. And you can see in the Dikaras people with the Bayrami Taj on their, their, their heads. So his uh, Bayrami, Qadiri, um, is familiar with Rumi, which you can see from Uftadi's translated poetry, but is also initiated into another branch of the Khalwatiya called the Jalwatiya. Remember this opposition that we cited earlier, Khalwa, retreat, Jalwa, being in public. Uh, sometimes Jalwa, uh, Khalwa and Anjuman is one of the four principles of the Naqshbandiya, that you have to be alone even with the crowd. When you're with others, you don't get swept up by their psychic energies and distracted, but you retain your mindfulness. So they say, al-khalwa fil-jalwa, solitude in the crowd, or khalwa dar anjuman in Persian. So this is a branch of the khalwatiya that is more inclined to public service and less inclined to uh, introspection. But we'll talk about their specific orientation and method a little bit later, inshallah. So the Jalwatiya, founded by somebody called Akbayuk Sultan, who are also from this amazing central Anatolian world that produces the, the Bayramiya, um, he's another disciple of Hajar Bayram Veli. Akshamsuddin is one branch. Uh, that's the Tariqa Shamsiya. And then the uh, Jalwatiya from Akbayuk Sultan. So it's uh, Khalwati, a sub-branch of the Khalwati, but not, not the main branch, which passes through somebody called Zahidi Gailani, and which uh, also is still alive in some places. And the Jalvatiya continue um, really until the time when the Tariqas are suppressed in Turkey by Ataturk. But nowadays, doesn't exist. You can't get a bay'at or an initiation in this Tariqa any longer. Its line has come to an end. It's like an English peerage which is extinct. The last baron of wherever dies and that's the end of the, the nasab or the lineage. So it's of historical interest, but places like this are no longer functioning within the tradition. So what does he find when he encounters Hazrati Iftade? What are the traditions of this Jalvati Tariqa? Um, well, let's, uh, <coughs> look at some of the poetry, because this is very much this, this Sufi world is all about literature because of the ceremonies where people would be... The poetry is basically there to be sung. So very often they'll use the simpler meters 
and they'll turn the two hemistitches of the original Arabic Qasida into, divide each hemistitch into two, so you've got a quatrain, which is the Rubai, which originates in Iran, but is very big in uh, popular Turkish literature as well. So, Celvetiler, Verdiler, Ruha, Cila, Halka oldular aninçün müktida, vardır anlarda dahi üç iratibar, bu üçün devamıdır bülara kar, tezkiye ve tesfiye ve tecliye, bunlara ayinedir bil külliye, galki zati bahri vahdettir bular, sonra ta kesitir gerçi bular. Very simple meter and this is designed to be memorized or designed to be chanted. So this is a poem that defines who are the... <coughs> Jelvetis. To the name Jelveti is given the practice of jila, purification of the ruh. Uh, and for this reason, mankind takes them as leaders. Within it, to achieve this, there are three principles. Uh, and the one who, uh, and, and before reaching the end of the third principles, one has to work constantly. Tezkiya, Tasfiya, Tejliya. These are the three sort of pieces of key jargon for the, for the Jalwatiya, which I'll talk about shortly. Uh, this is the beginning and the end of all of our work. Hmm? When you have achieved this, you will drown in the sea of divine unity. Uh, you will see beyond outward forms to see the truth of things. It's kind of very uh, rough and ready translation, but it, it sums up what they think that they're about. So these three principles, Tezkiya, Tosfiya, Tejliya. And if you read the Divan of Mahmoud, uh, Aziz Mahmoud Hudai, or you listen to, often on Turkish radio, they're singing his songs, everybody knows them. These are the three terms that come up very frequently. So let's take a, a look at them, because this is really the three, three foundations of the Tariq Tezkiya. Now, in English, basically all of these words would mean something like purification, but they give them a specific meaning. So tezkiya basically means treating the ego, the lower self, as one's enemy, as one's true enemy. So to be purified from the ruses of that enemy, to be aware of the dangers of the nafs, and terki dunya, to cold shoulder the world, not to be impressed by status, money, prestige, self-glorification, the seven deadly sins. So at the beginning, it's a kind of moralistic tezkiya. Suri ve ma'navi mujahide. So there is formal and, and uh, symbolic mujahide, uh, which is spiritual effort. Formal means you actually have to do certain things, like uh, the formal practices of the sharia. But there has to be ma'navi work as well. Uh, you can't just discipline your body in obedience to God and prophetic emulation. You have to force your inward to prostrate and to fast and to give zakat as well. There has to be a mirroring of the surah and the ma'ana, the outward form with the inward reality. Because the alternative is nifaq. So they believe that we have, as well as our vujudi suri, the physical body, there is a vujudi ma'navi spiritual body, which is coterminous with this body, but which is spiritual and which survives after death. The secret of knowledge is self-discipline. 
So it's know thyself, overcome these monkeys and pigs and demons within, uh, and knowledge will be the result. So that's number one, uh, that's Tezkiah. Tosfia, uh, they define as a focus on the heart and training the heart always to accept iradatullah, God's decree. Whatever he does, uh, uh, accept it. Um, so they use the proverb, man amana bil qadar, amina min al qadar. Whoever believes in qadar, Allah's decree, is at peace and is safe from any kind of stress or depression. So that's a, a state of inward tranquility. And at this degree, uh, the particular practice which is believed to help inwardly in this is tilabati Qur'an, reading the Qur'an. This is a tariqah which, maybe that's why they have hifs. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. It's a very Qur'an recital-oriented tariqah and uh, much of their, their, their training is through Qur'anic recitation, which of course not just for gaining information, but also about ontologically engaging with the uncreated divine speech. The Qur'an is not of this world, it is the, the word. And therefore, when we hear it, when we breathe it, when we recite it, when we calligraph it, we are engaging with the divine mystery. It's not just a book, it's Kalamullahi al-Qadim, God's uncreated speech. So to engage with that aspect of the divine uh, is something that is going to push us along spiritually. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so much could be said on this one too. Yeah, that's right. There's a number of sub-principles under this. Um, I'll just go through them. Briefly, number one, to uh, genuinely uh, direct oneself to a state of tawbah and inaba, repentance and uh, expressing sorrow for one's errors. Number two, to be somebody who is constantly guarding uh, the principle of the sunnah and following the sunnah in all things. Not to feel in one's soul a kind of rush of attraction for things of this world. Number four, pele ta'am, reducing the amount one eats. Number five, pele kelam, not talking too much. Number six, zikri daimi, constantly remembering God, not just with the tasbih and formally, but to be constantly in a state of recollecting the divine reality. Uh, number seven, khalvati daimi, to be constantly in a state of retreat. So this is like the Nakshi principle of khalvat dar anjuman. Even if you're in a crowd, you're not just part of the herd impulses of the crowd and being pulled by whatever it is that's distracting them. But you are distinctive because your axis is not horizontal but vertical. So you are there not to seek service from them or influence from them, but to see how to serve them and how to influence them. So you become active rather than passive through this inward detachment and this khalwa. For one's heart to be connected to the heart of the sheikh, to be constantly uh, bearing in mind the, the perfection of the uh, spiritual 
guide, Nefi Hawatari Devam Etmek, to be on one's guard for and to push back the kind of random thoughts and impulses that come into the head, the kind of meaningless chit-chat of the lower self, distraction, stream of consciousness type ideas, which are part of inward lack of clarity. So this tosphia means also purifying yourself of these thoughts that jump like monkeys into your head and just distract you and have no benefit. So those are some of the principles of this tosphia thing. And then number three, after tezkia and tosphia, you have tejlia, also means purification, but something like manifesting, making clear, so that when a mirror is cleaned, something can shine in it. And this is the classic image of the heart as a mirror. And we need, with dhikr and our riyazat, our self-discipline, to polish it and clean it so that the light can shine in the mirror. Light doesn't come from us, we're just of clay. It's from the divine. But we need to polish ourselves so that that light can um, manifest itself. Uh, And this is, uh, for the Jalwatis, characterised by the state of seeing God's name Az-Zahir. The Qur'an says, He is the first and the last, and the hidden and the manifest. First three are easy to understand. What does it mean when God is manifest? Does it mean that the world is made of God? Evidently not. So what is this manifestation? So this tejlia is a divine action which, responding to the self-discipline of the disciple, but ultimately through pure divine gift, um, uh, opens the heart so that uh, God can be seen as al-zahir. So they say, the ordinary person sees the windmill, but the wali sees the wind. In other words, sees the divine agency in everything, not this did that, but God did that. Mm. So the agency of God. Uh, so in Hudai's poetry, this is from Hudai, Zohoro perde o mushtur zohora, gözü olan delil ister minora, güneş zahir değil midir karındaş, ne var görmezse ana çeşmi huffaş, Hüda zahirdir, mahluk nestur, hilaf anlayıp olma haktan durur. Which means, zuhuru perde olmuştur zuhura, God's, that which is the veil over God's manifest nature is his manifest nature itself. Which is the Qur'an, he is nearer to us than the jugular vein, so close that we can't see. Gözü olan delil ister minora, Does the open eye require proof uh, for the existence of light? Güneş zahir değil midir karandash? Oh my brother, is the sun not completely plain? Ne var görmezse ana çeşmi hufaş? Only the eye of a bat could fail to see the sun. Khuda zahirdir, mahluk mestur. God is zahir, manifest, but we, the creature, mahluk, are veiled. Khilafan layab ul mahaktan durur. Somebody who understands anything else is very far. Mahaktan durur, dur, should be, is very far, dur from, from the real. Right, so at this high degree of tejlia, purification of the heart means that. Uh, the divine name, Al-Zahir, actually starts to mean something. 
uh, and this is something that is understood by people who are at that degree. So another thing that the Gelbatia are famous for uh, is that they, let me give you just to run the changes, a few more images of the teke, that's how they've arranged it inside. That's the little mosque that's attached to it, um, which is now open for the prayers again. Um, it's not the same as the Uftar de Jame, which is his mosque, which is uh, elsewhere in, in Borsa. This is the kind of prayer room inside the teke. Uh, the Jelvatiya show the Khalwati lineage in uh, adhering to the famous Khalwati sevenfold division of the soul. And this becomes psychologically very precise because medieval Islamic civilization, unlike ourselves, they tend to be focused on outward things. So we'll spend a lot of time studying details of fiqh, but the inward life, who knows? Inshallah, we're mukhlis. Uh, but no, there's, there's an inward science which we really need to master if the niyyah is going to be correct, if we're going to be genuine people with the inward horizon as well as just the outward surah, the outward form. That the khalwat is famous in analysing the, the, the dimensions of the soul in terms of seven degrees. Some of you might have seen Abdul Khaliq al-Shabarawi's book, Degrees of the Soul. It's a 20th century Egyptian Khalwati, um, uh, Khalwati manual. So that's available in English if you want to see how it works. So there are these miratib. And each of these miratib is associated with a particular litany or dhikr, a particular formula, uh, which is appropriate at helping one to move above that stage to the one above. So number one, of course, is an-nafs al-ammara, from Surah Yusuf, inna nafsa la-ammaratun bisu'. The nafs in an Egyptian palace, sure, is rampant. There are the seven deadly sins, gluttony and lust and status and pride and all of that. The palace is that. Uh, and the ego finds that to be its natural home, not a place like that, which the ego finds a bit boring very quickly, but a palace, sure. Wine, women and song, status, prestige, the sultan's carriage, pharaoh's glitter. The nafs amara inclines to that. So this is the commanding soul, the lowest self that is drawn towards that thing, which is the lowest, the darker, animalistic possibility within us. And that's where we all begin. And the vicar at that stage um, uh, or the ism, they sometimes say ismai sabah, the seven names, seven phrases that you use. They just say la ilaha illallah. And they have a particular way of, of moving the head during that because that fundamental reality, which is the boundary between kufr and unbelief, to the extent that this salik, this wayfarer is still Muslim, they will say la ilaha illallah. And reflecting on that, the only reality is the divine. Uh, focus on God. And don't take these other things to be your idols and your gods, uh, because in the face of the divine majesty and power, they, they're nothing. So see things in proportion. So that's the first uh, stage and the first ism. And then uh, an-nafs al-lawama, which is again a Quranic phrase, the blaming soul, which is where most of us are at. We do bad stuff and then we feel bad about it. Uh, and sometimes we get into a kind of loop we do something bad and we get a dopamine hit and then we feel bad about that and then because we're feeling bad we want to do something bad again and a lot of people are stuck. This is the world of uh, addiction, isn't it? Very easy. Uh, 
can see the, uh, uh, some of the gambling websites got into trouble, according to this morning's press, for specifically trying to reach out to Alzheimer's patients, which is pretty low. But industries like that, yeah, they want to get us into that dopamine loop so they can keep their hands in our pockets uh, indefinitely. So, and then we feel bad. We have this self-blame. We blame ourselves. Sometimes it's such a strong impulse, we even blame ourselves for stuff we didn't do. We feel guilty when a relative dies or something. It's, it's, it's a strong part of the human psyche. Uh, and that's the next stage. So from the next stage, uh, the dhikr is Allah. That's just the lafz jalal. You just say Allah, Allah. Allah at that stage, along with all of the other awrad and wazaif that the tariqah has, but that's specific to somebody who is in that state. Why? Because the divine name helps us to see things in proportion. And it's still the case in traditional Muslim countries that if people see something happening that's really awful, uh, or something that's really amazing, they would just say, Allah. Uh, You'll hear that sometimes. It's the first word that naturally comes to the surface of the believing consciousness uh, because it's a, a solace, isn't it? Um, that this is a catastrophe, but Allah is still there. Uh, that's why belief is associated with positive mental health outcomes, for instance. So you remember just the divine Allah, the existence of God, not even la ilaha illallah. And that will help you to deal with this guilt-inducing uh, loop and to move Onwards. Number three, an nafs al-mulhama, the inspired soul. So this is where it's not just us trying to fight our way up, but where a helping hand comes to pull us up uh, in the form of ilham and perhaps kashf, where the seeker starts to see, as Hudai did and as Imam Ghazali did, that the world is not what it seems to be, not taking things at face value, which is actually very terrifying. <laughs> interpretation of things. Behind the surface of things there's the divine reality and the divine mercy. So the Quran says, وَنَفْسٍ This is sort of the shams, isn't it? وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا And the ego and that which made it and he inspired in it its corruption and its guidance. <coughs> so this is the divine movement into the soul. <coughs> And uh, in order to benefit from that, the dhikr at this level, the ism, is hu, just the divine name, hu, which is the pronoun of absence, damir al-ghaib, the Arabs would say. It still feels distant at that point. Where is God? Where is God as zahir? Seems strange, uh, but still his existence is to be affirmed. Number four, an nafs al-mutma'inna, sometimes described as the degree of, of ayn al-yaqeen, uh, the nafs, the soul at peace. Ya ayyuhan nafsul mutma'inna, surat al-fajr. At this point, because the, uh, the divine inspiration and the overcoming of the lower self brings a kind of settling of that dust which is constantly being kicked up in the ego of the egotistic, undisciplined self, there is a kind of calm, the ripples on the surface of the lake are calmed. There is a serenity, a nafsul mutma'inna, which in, in the Qur'an, Surah Al-Fajr, is the way God addresses people when he wel- welcomes them into paradise, which is the abode of complete peace. Dar as-salam. 
Uh, so the impulses are subdued and this tranquility results. And the dhikr here is haq. If you go to a, if you went to a jalbati dhikr, they'd just be saying haq, haq, haq. Number five, a nafs ar-radiyah, the soul that is satisfied or well-pleased, sometimes called maqam al-mushahada. This is where you completely accept God's decree, the qada'a. Whatever happens, good or ill, you're not afraid. Good response to our time of plague, I think we would say. Allah's will, let's not freak out and empty the supermarket shelves. Uh, so this is part of uh, the soul at peace, but it's higher because it's actually happy with what God is doing, even if we can't always see the reasons for it, and why should we? And the dhikr here is hai, uh, the divine as living. Number six, an-nafs al-mardiyah, the soul uh, with whom God is pleased. Radiyat and pleased with God, God is pleased with them. A higher degree, the degree of haq al-yaqeen, the degree where there is divine approval. This is a servant who is truly a servant, rather than just going through the motions every Friday, but somebody who is actively in harmony with the divine will and the caliphal possibilities of Bani Adam. <coughs> Number seven, sometimes called an-nafs al-kamila or an-nafs al-safiya, the perfect soul, the pure soul. Uh, this is where the reality of the prophetic commandment, taqallaqu bi akhlaqillah, emulate God's qualities, becomes actual. So instead of our own qualities, which are animalistic, if left to their own devices, we reconfigure ourselves according to perfections which are known to be perfect because they're in the divine nature. So God is a Rahman, so we become merciful. God is the just, we become just. God is the mild, we become mild. God is the forgiving, and so forth, with these names. And Imam al-Ghazali's book, Al-Maqsad al-Asna, explains, in, with reference to each of the 99 names, how each name can be reflected as part of a human being's spiritual development. Uh, and at this maqam, which is vehbi, it's just a divine gift, you can't work to achieve it, it's just given, one becomes qualified to be a murshid or a uh, spiritual teacher. And the name here, which is invoked, is Ya Qahar, which is uh, one of the most majestic and uh, rigorous of the divine names and a name not to be used on its own by people at a lower degree, as their sources explain. So this is the tradition which is going on in this place and being taught to people who are coming from all over the, the Ottoman world. and beyond, to sit at the feet of a man who's quite old by this time, Uftade, uh, an unusual, but you know, his poems are even in English now, uh, an ongoing influence. Born in Bursa, 1490, uh, and his father makes him uh, an apprentice to a silk maker. Bursa was the capital, but you have to remember this is the western end of the Silk Road. If you go to Borsa to this day, you'll see the, uh, the, the silk market and the very splendid sort of hotels, caravanserais, hans that were used by the merchants who'd come from this enormous journey from, uh, from China on the Silk Road. So this is the terminus of the big superhighway of um, pre-modern commerce, at least a commerce that traveled by land. So a really cosmopolitan place. And this is why a lot of these Central Asian influences are coming in, because. These people are coming from Samarkand, Bukhara, Shash, all the time. 
So he's apprenticed to uh, be a silk maker, uh, but he doesn't stay with that because he starts hanging around with uh, Mejzublar, uh, these kind of ecstatic, difficult dervishes um, who say unpredictable and strange and apparently subversive things. Um, the historians record that he used to hang out with them, but it's also known that he became the chief khatib of the main mosque in, in Bursa, and also the khatib of the Emir Sultan Mosque, which we saw earlier, which is one of the two or three big mosques of the city, which must indicate that he'd had a good madrasa education as well. He's the disciple of Huzr Dede from this uh, Jalvati tradition, and when his sheikh dies, he becomes what's known as Uwaisi. Nowadays, if you hang out in Sufi circles, you might hear this word quite often. And Uwaisi is somebody who takes his inspiration from Sayyidina Uwais al-Qarni, who hears of the Holy Prophet, but gets to Medina after he's died, but is he's known and is praised by the Holy Prophet before he arrives. So an Uwaisi is somebody who has a spiritual attachment to a particular spiritual presence or lineage, but doesn't actually take the formal ritual of bay'ah or initiation, perhaps because there's years separating them. So he has this Uwaisi affiliation, particularly to the way of Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, whose influence is everywhere um, amongst the ulama and the Sufis of the Ottoman Empire. Mullah Fenari, who I mentioned earlier, the one who wouldn't let the Sultan bear witness in, in the mosque, also has one of the most influential commentaries on the Fusus al-Hikam of Muhyiddin. Ibn Arabi, and the first of all of the Ottoman Mudarrises in the first Ottoman capital of Iznik, um, which is the Orhan Ghazi Madrasa, the first Madrasa in this huge empire that's going to last six centuries, is Dawidi Qaysari, who is separated by only three teachers from Ibn Arabi himself, and is again one of the big commentators on the Fusus. So Ibn Arabi is a major um, part of the Ottoman intellectual world. So uh, he has this connection with Ibn Arabi. Uh, we've got some original text. Yeah, this is uh, one of the historians says, Uftade Hazretleri, Mirhum Sheikh Ekbar, Ekbar, Qadasalaw Sarah, Hazretlerinin, Mishri bin Idilar. So Uftade. Uh, was uh, uh, the set from the same mashrab, the drinking place, the same inspiration as that of uh, Muhyiddin ibn Arabi. Fakhrul muta'akhirin dirlar, emsilin muta'abidin dirlar, and was called the, the pride of those who came after him and the most exemplary of worshippers. Yeah, so then we get this Oasi explanation. Murshidliri, Hizr Dede, Din Vifatandan. Dededin vefatından sonra Şeyh-i Ekber Hazretlerinin ruhaniyetlerinden istifaza buyurmuşlardır. So after his own Murshid Hazr died, uh, he started uh, istifaza, get the phase, the spiritual emanation from the ruhaniyya, the principle of uh, Sheikh al-Akbar. And in this time, if you can still find this world in some way that hasn't been subverted or cheapened uh, a, a living lineage and you ask a little old guy who knows that he's the last in the line and generally that's what happens uh, they don't find worthy successors 
what happens when you're gone, often they will say the Oasi way of attaching yourself spiritually to one of the great ones of the past. Uh, and this is something that uh, can have uh, very manifest uh, benefits and can keep people kind of spiritually alive and alert and energetic in their ibadah in times where everything seems to be falling apart. So uh, Uftadeh has this mysterious connection. He's like Ibn Arabi's representative in Bursa, even though there's three centuries between them. Uh, and this is very evident in his works. If you look at Balanfat's translation of bits of his divan, it's very Akbarian. And in his khutbas as well, khutbas that he's giving at Emir Sultan. Um, he also, following the Khalwati line, does his khalwa in various mosques, very many of which have little chilehanes or rooms for khalwa attached. The Atiq Ali Pasha Mosque in, in uh, Bursa, traditionally they would point out the place where he had his chilehane. Um, and some other mosques uh, as well. And Hudai used to do the same thing, leave his teke and go to another place for his chile. So there's even a, a bus stop on the Anatolian side of Istanbul called Chilehane, which is the place where Aziz Mahmoud Hudai would do his chile, which is some way from his teke, but it's still a, a, the name of a district in Istanbul. So Iftade, his name, which is strange, is Persian for the fallen, the one who fell down. And the story goes uh, that when he was muezzin at the main mosque, the Ulujami of Bursa, uh, he had such an extraordinary voice because of his inner spiritual clarity that people would go there just to listen. They say even the Greeks of Bursa used to go to listen to his azan. And some people would uh, go into ecstasy. And once, somebody came up to him after his azan and gives him a gift, a financial gift. All right, so after, uh, after that, he feels bad about it, and that night he has a dream in which he sees himself, and while he's giving the azan from the high brick minaret, he falls off. So he realizes that you're not supposed to take a financial reward for something that people find spiritually Beneficial, so he adopts this as his own name, Uftade, the one who fell from the minaret. So, uh, to get back to Aziz Mahmoud Hodai, he, he comes to this guy, uh, maybe there, who knows, uh, and the Uftade is very surprised to see this kind of exoteric chief justice um, turning up. Um, in his you know, Qadi's outfit and the silk kaftan and pomp pageantry of Ottoman officialdom. And so Iftari sees him and says, hey, uh, olsun, hey, Qadi Efendi. I'm very sorry, Qadi, your, your, your uh, honour, the judge. You've come to the wrong place. Uh, this is the gate of nothingness of nothing at all. There is here only nothing. And we're the slaves, the doorkeepers of the door of nothingness. But you're a person of something. You have status and wealth and this enormous turban. So what, what are you doing here? What do we have in common? We're just slaves. All we have here is Allah. And uh, this has an impact. Aziz Mahmoud Hudai starts 
to cry um, in this place. And he says, Efendim, Eledim. He says, I have left all of that stuff behind me just to come to your uh, uh, blessed threshold. Dileim talibin is olabilmek ve hizmetinizi görmekle şereflenmektir. It is just my desire to have the honor of serving you and becoming your student. Her ne emredersiniz yapmaya hazırım. I'm ready to do anything that you command. Uh, so he's come for bayah, to become his disciple. Now, Üftade hears this and sees that he's actually serious. This is this big state official who says, I'll do whatever you say. You're this dervish who's the servant of the door of nothingness. I will do what you say. So <laughs> he sets him his first task. He says, OK, Kadi Effendi, you'll do anything that I say. I want you to go to the main marketplace in Borsa uh, and sell tripe in your judge's robes mm-hmm. with the turban and the silk and the fur and the whole thing. And you're a tripe seller and you have to say, which is what the tripe sellers say. Kind of so that's the lowest caste, really. It's lower than being a butcher selling this kind of spleens and bladders and livers and things. You have to go like, everybody knows you're the Qadi and you're doing this. So, <laughs> so he does this. Uh, after, and there's a movie um, which is popular in Turkey. Uh, there he is. He's kind of in the side street and he says, I can't do this, I can't do this. Uh, and it's very difficult. But the love for the Sheikh and the determination to make progress um, means that off he goes and he does it. Everybody thinks the Qadi has gone mad. Right? There's a big scandal. Because if he's mad, what about that judgment? And I divorce. This is a problem. The Qadi is mad. You can see him shouting and selling bladders in, in the marketplace in his robes. Very subversive. So he gets sacked. He loses his job. And he works in the teke uh, cleaning the toilets. Uh, and he is put through a process of sort of typical dervish austerity. Um, fasts for days on end. Each time his iftar is one apple. Uftade consoles him by saying that this self-abasement is only a stage in the dervish's education uh, because that's the meaning of the prayer. You stand and then you abase yourself, but you don't stay in sujood. You're in a tranquil position of settlement, the jalsa between the two. Uh, incidentally, the, the jalvatis have their own particular uh, form of... of sitting in dhikr, and they're the only tariqah to have done this. They don't stand and they don't sit, either on their haunches or cross-legged, but um, they would uh, be on their knees, but kind of upright. Uh, And there's various stories that uh, account for this, and one is that the founder of the tariqah was visited by al-Khidr, according to some of the stories, and he rose out of respect. Al-Khidr didn't really want him to rise, but he wouldn't go down again. And so from that time onwards, for hundreds of years, they did their dhikr on their knees, but in a kind of upright uh, position. Uh, yeah, they call it nisf uh, or the huzr qiyamah, the, the 
standing for Khizr, and this would be done until the 20th century. So a series of master-pupil encounters, which are kind of part of the, the standard diet of Turkish storytelling to this day, um, stories of the two together on horseback by the river, often walking in the, the mountain, Uludar, which is Mount Olympus, which is this snowy peak, um, where Sufis would traditionally go for retreats, especially in Ramadan, and some people still do that. You'll find people from Bursa, especially young men, taking tents and spending the last 10 days of Ramadan up in the mountain. I've known people who, who do that. Um, certain strange things overcome the Qadi, so he goes through a period where he can only see people who are in control of themselves inwardly in a gathering. So sometimes he'd be greeting a whole bunch of people and he'd miss some people out because in some way he just wouldn't see them. Uh, sometimes he'd ignore the great pashas or once he was invited to the house of an Ottoman prince and he greeted all the servants but ignored all of the sort of high-ranking state dignitaries. Um, there's another famous story uh, narrated of him which uh, occurs in the winter, and the winters in Bursa are more severe than English winters. It's really snowy and icy. It's a mountainous uh, area. Um, some of the other dervishes are kind of jealous of uh, Uftade, and uh, they think, well, this is a new murid, and why is he getting so much quality time with the sheikh? And the sheikh says, well, sometimes the youngest and the freshest grapes are the sweetest. They don't like this result. And so he's kind of angry with them for this sort of jealousy. And so he says, OK, go up to the mountain, to my garden, my cottage there, and pick me a bunch of grapes and I'll show you. OK, it's the middle of the winter, and there's a snowstorm outside the windows of the Teke in Borsa, and he's telling them to go and pick grapes in the winter up the mountain. Uh, so they seem doubtful, and uh, they think, well, maybe the sheikh is really off his rocker now. Grapes, the snow, do we really want to go up there? Um, that's just a place he uses in the summer. But Aziz Mahmoud Hudai agrees to go because his acceptance of his sheikh's wisdom is absolute. So he works his way up to the sheikh's little hut or cottage um, where he has a little garden near the top of the mountain. No one there, of course. And the snow and the winds are blasting. There's a blizzard. And in the garden, of course, he finds a vine with one miraculous bunch of grapes. So he picks it, and uh, clutching it, he goes down the hill again, but it's dark by this time, and the blizzard is still there, and he falls into a hole, some kind of well, and he can't get out. Nobody there to help. Uh, but suddenly he hears a voice from the top of the well, give me your hand and I'll pull you out. Aziz Mahmoud Uday says, who are you? And he says, I am Khidr, come to help you. But Aziz Mahmoud Hudai, according to the historians, has reached the degree of al-fana' fi sheikh, wants to be helped only by his sheikh. So he says, I will never take the hand of anyone except my teacher. Please excuse me. And at this, Iftade, of course, appears side by side with Khidr and says, uh, stretch out your hand, Evladan, my son, and he's pulled up. And he kind of dusts the snow off himself and looks around, but there's nobody there. Um, after a difficult journey, he gets back to the Teke, and um, everybody there is kind of sitting down, 
nothing had happened. Um, and he offers his bag, Uftade takes it and uncovers the grapes, there's fresh vine leaves, and he offers the grapes around to the dervishes. Uh, and then he says, why have you brought these so late? What, what held you up? So he uh, realizes um, an important lesson in this. Uh, another famous uh, story, uh, uh, it was his job early in the morning for the Fajr prayer, Sabah namaz, uh, to get up early in order to warm the water for everybody's wudu. It's sub-zero temperatures outside uh, and you have to uh, break the ice and heat it up, light a fire. Not, not easy in those pre-electric, pre-gas heated days in the dark. So this was his job. And one day he oversleeps and he wakes up and he says in a few minutes the sun's going to rise, the sheikh is going to miss his fajr, the dervishes are going to miss their fajr, I'm, I'm for the chop. And the sheikh calls out to him uh, and he says, Come on my son, pour the water. We're late, we're going to be late, come on, where's the water, it's time to pray. And he knows that the water is absolutely icy and there's lumps of ice in this frozen water. And how can he pour this out for his sheikh? He's blown it. But he does what he's told and he pours the water. And then the sheikh says, Evladen Mahmoud, busone kadar He says, Mahmoud, the water is really hot this morning. Mahmoud, my son. Uh, and he says, but I know this is not warmed with ordinary fire, but with gunul artishi with uh, the soul's heat, with the soul's fire. And then he summons the dervishes and says, two lions are too many for a single forest. It's time for you to make yourself known. Uh, go light your own fire, and may a sultan hold the reins of your horse. And with that blessing, he goes off, uh, having received the formal permission to teach the ijazat and the right of khilafat, the succession. So he goes back to Sivarithar, you remember the, the wooden mosque, where he spends a few months, but then he hears that Iftadi is sick, he's already 90, 90, and he goes back to spend um, the last few months with him, and he uh, dies uh, in the year 1580. Incidentally, the Ottomans used to like chronograms. I um, don't know if any of you are familiar with this tradition, because each letter of the Arabic alphabet and also the Ottoman Persian alphabet, which is derived from it, has a numerical value. It's a kind of cool thing for a literate person to do, to write a line of poetry that when you add up the letters gives you the, date, the death date of that person. And you see these quite often on the doors of mosques and things. So Mr. Kimzade writes, Dishtu dile kalem den irtihali uftade. The pen fell from his hand, but his heart is there. The date of Uftade's departure, 988, which is the Hijri date, um, 1580. And there's some other tarikhs, chronograms. Um. So then from Borsa he goes to European Turkey to Thrace. And in Thrace, we don't know exactly where he is, but it's probably the area of Edirne again. He gets a formal letter of invitation by the Sheikh al-Islam, Sa'ad al-Din Effendi, who's the top scholar of the whole empire. And he goes back to Istanbul, back to the Küçük Sophia, which you'll remember is the, the madrasa, the former Byzantine complex, 
um, where he was teaching in his 20s. And he becomes a teacher there of tafsir fiqh. And he also teaches at the Sahan, which is the, the, the colleges attached to the Fatih Mosque, which was the top madrasa in, I guess, the whole Islamic world at the time. Uh, but while he's earning a halal income from this profession, he is also building his own dergah, his own teke, or spiritual center, across the, the Bosphorus in Üsküdar. You may remember from our lecture on Ebi Saud Effendi that uh, the Ottomans would speak of Bilad-i Selasa, the, the three towns, Istanbul, and then also Galata, which is the other side of the Golden Horn, if you know the geography. And then the other side of the sea, the Bosphorus, you have Üsküdar and the satellite town of Kardaku. And Üsküdar <coughs> was a place where people would go uh, in order to retire very often. Um, and so quite a lot of quite wealthy people would live there. Uh, and there's some very magnificent sultanic mosques. Incidentally, all three of the, all th incidentally, all three of the big famous historic mosques of Üsküdar were built by women, including Mihrima Sultan, the daughter of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who is said to have been the wealthiest woman in the world at the time who built this amazing building right next to the sea so she could take her boat up to the mosque and pray and then go back again, back to the palace. That was apparently a, a magnificent, magnificent sight. So uh, he is in Üsküdar, which is at a kind of respectful distance from the hustle and bustle of the town on a hill, the place in the hill where he can look out over the amazing view, maybe the best view in the world, to the minarets of Istanbul, uh, and see the Sultan's palace uh, and the great mosques, but from a distance. Um, so, yeah, this is it uh, at the moment. It's quite a, uh, I guess as you'd expect, quite a humble place. The Tekirs, the dervish lodges are not the kind of spectacular kind of blue mosque, imperial bling. Uh, partly because they had to be built only with unambiguously Sharia-compliant donations, which a lot of the big mosques of Istanbul aren't. Um, so to this day, there's an issue about whether you can pray your Jummah in some of the mosques, because the mosques might have been built with money that was uh, unlawfully extracted um, for their construction. Uh, but these uh, fairly humble structures, the tekes, um, the... Uh, main part of the tech in the sheikh's house is up there. There's various graves. And on this side, there's a kind of college and a nice garden where they sit around and sing. And this is the entrance to the mosque. And there's cats everywhere, by the way. I used to live about two minutes away, and my kids love to go there in order to play with the cats. And part of the waqf is feeding the cats. So, uh, yeah, it's still to this day, uh, four centuries later, uh, a major hub. So he does the traditional Sufi things, so he provides a soup kitchen to feed the poor, um, works in his own vegetable garden, heals the sick, and so forth. But it actually becomes one of the leading cultural centers of the empire. Generally, the Sufi lodges were kind of hives of activity for literary figures um, and creative people of all kinds. The mosques were for ibadah and for formal classes, cultural things. Um, tended to happen in the tekkes. So there's hundreds of students who show up here from all over the Islamic world. Um, and the audience that he have his, has is really mixed. So a uh, grand vizier might find himself sitting next to a shoemaker, 
uh, and several sultans actually become his murids and formally take the pledge of Sufi initiation uh, with him, um, including uh, Murad III, Mehmed III, and uh, here he is. I uh, don't know if that's an accurate representation, but uh, uh, that is uh, Sultan Ahmed, who, of course, commissioned the famous Blue Mosque in Istanbul, and who, because of his closeness to Hudai, invited him to give the very first khutbah in the Blue Mosque when it was opened. And he used to travel there, taking his boat across the Bosphorus quite regularly in order to teach there and to give the khutbahs. And actually, he preaches in a lot of Istanbul mosques as well. And after Sultan Ahmed uh, I dies, we have um, two more sultans who also become his disciples, Osman II and Murad IV. And by this time, his fame and blessings are so well known that he, is, he presides over the official kind of coronation ceremony of the Ottoman sultans, which is the Kulaj Kushatma ceremony, which is instead of being given a, a crown by the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's the formal investiture of the sword of office. Um, so the sword of Osman is carried by the current sultan and it's formally handed to him by uh, uh, a spiritual eminence. And he actually spends quite a bit of time at the palace in order to sort of provide the sultan with spiritual direction, to interpret his dreams, to function as a, a physician some of the time. Uh, and he's following his teacher, uh, Uftade, who had been quite close to uh, Murad III. So one night, the sultan has a dream in the palace. He's wrestling with the, with the king of Austria, the Habsburg emperor. They're kind of doing this Turkish wrestling thing. And the Austrian king throws him on his back. Sounds like bad news. And he wakes up disturbed and he calls for um, Aziz Mahmoud Hudai. Uh, but he does this by writing the dream down and sending a janissary, a soldier, across to uh, um, Aziz Mahmoud Hudai, uh, who then takes the letter, but again, according to the historians, doesn't open it, but tells uh, the janissary, my respects to his majesty, I already have written the response. So he hands him another letter. And the soldier is kind of amazed, but goes back, back to Topkapa. The sultan opens the envelope, and this is what the interpretation is. Allah Ta'ala has created the back as the strongest part of the human body, and the surface of the earth as the strongest of all lifeless things. When the back comes into contact with the earth, two great powers are combined. Two great strengths have been brought together in you. For this reason, the enemies will be defeated at your hands. So this, this is his interpretation. And the sultan's so happy that he sends a whole fleet of boats, each with magnificent gifts for the sheikh, um, uh, who refuses them all. Uh, but from that time on, the sultan kind of gets religion and uh, starts to write Sufi poetry. Don't know that the Ottoman sultans took their poetry quite seriously. So here's Sultan Ahmed, who's this maybe the most powerful man in the world, who builds the Blue Mosque, which all the tourists goggle at at the Sonne Lumiere every night. Uh, but you can get an insight into his soul in poems like this. I've given myself to Allah. Nothing that I own remains mine. He has taken all of it, and nothing shall be mine in this world or the next. For God's love has swooped upon me and has taken myself from me. It has opened wide the eyes of my heart. No darknesses remain. 
I'm set alight by the prayers of the righteous. I've become a slave to God. My heart is light. Nothing shall be mine in this world or the next. O Allah, thanks to you shall never end. Praise to Allah from love of him. Nothing that I owned remains. And some others, um, which uh, he was not a bad poet. Suleiman the Magnificent, using the pen name Muhibbi, also to Divan. Sultan Mehmet Fatih, also to Divan. Very kind of Ibn Arabi-inspired Wahdud Lujud type poetry. So he also says, Ben Edna bir abdi asim ilaha. It's like a prayer. Kapanda bir gidayim padishaha. Bihaqi suri yasinu taha. Benikul alimi ma'nada sultan. So this is his prayer written to God. Um, I am the lowest of the disobedient slaves, O oh my God. I am the lowest beggar at your gate, O my Sultan. By the power of Surah Yasin and Taha, make me a Sultan in the world of meaning. Bufani alimin yoktur mejali, hayalu zilgibidir mülkümale, verip rozi cezada kadri ali, benikül alimi ma'nada Sultan. My scope is nothing. I have no role in this transient world. All the wealth and all of the kingdom of this world is just like a shadow or an imagining. Uh, Give me a high standing on the day of reward and make me a sultan in the invisible world. By the rights of the face of the, the pride of the world, that's the Holy Prophet. Habibi Akram, the greatest beloved. Bisirri Terki Ibrahim Adam, by the secret of Ibrahim ben Adam's Terk. Ibrahim ben Adam, the famous Sufi, who was the prince of Balkh, who made Tawbah and renounced everything to call people to Allah. So this is a kind of precedent for the righteous king in Islamic culture. Um, make me a sultan in the real world, in the world of meaning. So he produces this diwan of poetry using the pen name. Ottoman and Persian poets usually used a pen name uh, of Bakhti. Um, and uh, he dies relatively young. His brother is a problem, Mustafa. He, he seems to have been insane. But the next great sultan, Murad IV, is somebody who really revives the empire's fortunes. But in any case, one day the sultan is riding. You can imagine what a magnificent cavalcade that would have been uh, on a great Arab horse down the main street, the Charsha in Üsküdar. Aziz Mahmud Huday comes to watch. Sultan sees him in the crowd, gets off his horse and makes Aziz Mahmud Huday ride in his stead. And all the dervishes are saying, no, of course he's not going to do this. He's not going to ride on the sultan's horse. And uh, the courtiers also, the kind of court guys, think uh, this is what the sheikh is really about. He wants pomp and circumstance. Uh, But the sheikh does do it. But after a few steps, he gets off and insists that the sultan rides again. And he explains, uh, when my teacher sent me to Istanbul, his prayer was, may sultans hold the reins of your horse. So I did this so that my teacher's prediction or dua should come about. So I mentioned that this, this place, this Turkey, 
is full of amazing people um, for the kind of cultural activities, calligraphy and other traditional arts that would be practiced there, uh, poetry, uh, but also Ottoman music. By this stage, this may be the highest development of classical Ottoman music, which is a hugely sophisticated um, technique. So one of the most interesting people who come, and there's the historian Atai, who's the greatest Ottoman historian of the time, who spends a lot of time here, the Grand Vizier Khalil Pasha. Everybody turns up at this place. Um, but one of my favorite is this Ali Ufki. We even have a picture of him, drawn by a Genoese traveler, who is one of the most interesting people in the Ottoman Empire. And he's a convert. And at this period, as Professor Graf has recently told us in this book, the Sultan's Renegades, Christian European Converts to Islam and the Making of the Ottoman Elite, 1575 to 1610. The empire is really built on the efforts of large numbers of Europeans who are converting, not just in the military, uh, but also in uh, state administration. The first printing press ever in the Islamic world is founded by Ibrahim Mutafarriqa, who is a Hungarian Unitarian convert who comes to the Sultan's domains writes some books and prints books in the Arabic script uh, for the first time. His printing press is still one of the uh, amazing facts. Uh, he didn't hang out Ibrahim Mutafaraka at this place in Üsküdar, but at the, um, the main Mevlevi Khane in Istanbul, which is um, in Galata. And actually, you can see his grave. It's, he's still buried there. Uh, so, but this guy, Ali Ufki, is Polish. I'm not going to try and pronounce his name. Albertus Bobovius is his Latin name, uh, who is captured during a, a, a Polish-Lithuanian invasion of Ottoman Ukraine uh, and is uh, a slave. After 20 years, uh, when he's been taken to the palace and trained up to a very high level, uh, he's uh, freed uh, and he ends up eventually going to Cairo, retiring there. He's converted to Islam, he does the Hajj. But he's really a kind of polymath. He's said to have known 16 languages and was one of the official dragoman's court interpreters. So he knew not just Polish and Latin, but German and English and Greek and Armenian, uh, and the Islamic languages as well. He's the first person, even though he's a convert to Islam, to translate the Bible into Ottoman Turkish, which is still the only complete translation of the Bible in Turkish. Um, he writes, but he's also, because it seems that he was a chorister in Poland, has a musical bent, he studies Ottoman music, and he publishes a really important book called Mejmu'ai Sazu Sez, uh, of which only two copies survive. One is in the British Library, it's one of the amazing treasures. And it's the first time ever that Islamic music has been written down using Western notation. A few attempts have been made before then using the Armenian notation, which is really quite difficult. But here he's using Western stave and so forth, and you've got the words to be sung underneath, if you can see them. But instead of being written from left to right, the music is actually written from right to left, which is kind of take you a long time to be able to sight read using that system. But you can see the innovative sort of novelty of this guy. And uh, Graf's point is that after the first flush of conquest, the Ottoman Empire uh, was reinvigorated by new blood and these converts who came in in order to uh, keep the society 
lively. Uh, he also wrote down from memory uh, the Protestant Psalter, the Geneva Psalter, the Psalms that the Protestants would use in their ceremonies because Protestants, even in England until the 19th century, didn't really sing hymns, uh, but just did psalms. Uh, so he set this to Turkish music. Uh, so you can see he's really a kind of globalised individual. And you, this is even sort of revived, so here's a CD that you can get. Um, and there have been different groups. I think there was one at Harvard recently did a con concert of his Mizmurlar, his Turkish translation of the Geneva Psalter, but using Ottoman uh, um, uh, modes and rhythms. So Istanbul was this meeting of East and West and all kinds of interesting people were there. <coughs> he also writes a grammar of the Turkish language uh, and he also translated Hugo Grotius into Turkish. Grotius was one of the great legal theorists and jurisprudence of early modern Europe. And his first appearance in Turkish was at the hands of Ali Ufki. Uh, but he did his Hajj, he was a sincere member of the Ummah, but in a kind of relaxed imperial age where people were not very stressed about boundaries, he did these bridge-building things. So, yep, uh, some interesting people are attracted to Hudai Hazrat Liri and his uh, Tekke. Um, yeah, and this, again, the Sultan, so many stories narrated of this. There's one famous story in which uh, Hudai is going to pray in the palace and lead the Sultan's family. And the Sultan is out of respect, pouring the water for his wudu, uh, and the mother is waiting with a, with a towel, and she says, Hazrat uh, say to God, we would really like to see a miracle. Can you please, can you do us a miracle? Please, please, please. <laughs> and of course, he's not going to do that, and it's by Allah's command anyway, but instead, he finishes his abdest, his ablutions, and then he tells her, some people ask for miracles, isn't it enough of a miracle that a man with no money at all is here in this palace while the ruler of the world is pouring water for him while his mother is waiting with a towel? So they get something out of that. Um, all kinds of other uh, miracle stories, but maybe we should... Uh, um, oh, let's just have one more because they, they have such tremendous perennial value. Uh, one day he is uh, sitting in the courtyard of his teke doing his dhikr and a young man comes up and again he wants some kind of interesting ego-stimulating secret. So he says, Sheikh, is it true that you know alchemy? You can do this thing of turning things into gold. Yes, it's true. The Sheikh says, we can do alchemy. Huh? And then the wind starts to blow through the garden of the teke and uh, there's a, a grapevine there on a trellis and some of the leaves fall down and they can hear the divine name, Hu. And when the young man looks at the leaves, he sees that it's actually gold leaf. Uh, and Aziz Mahmoud Huday stands up and kind of brushes these things off his patched robe and says to the young man, real alchemy is to change yourself Anything else is a kind of 
conjuring trick. So thousands of stories like that. Um, so he's there, but he's also, of course, preaching at the most amazing Sultan Ahmed Mosque. Uh, but uh, he also writes, and some of his books are still uh, celebrated. So his, uh, you can pick up lots of editions of his Divan, still very popular in uh, Turkey, partly because um, they're pretty simple. Uh, he can write in the very complicated Sebki Hindi Indian style of elaborate Baroque wordplay. He can do that, but mostly he just wants to get basic principles of religion across in order to benefit the common people and to provide a kind of package of dawah material for his disciples who are going out um, all over uh, Anatolia and uh, Ottoman Europe. So uh, he has his Divan, which is his most significant book that he left behind him. Uh, but he has lots of other books. He's got, uh, as far as we can tell, um, and most of them are held in yeah, this library, which is a really nice place to visit, um, in Üsküdar, very close, a bit down the hill, um, from his Teke. Uh, 19 books in Arabic. Uh, which include Ahwal al-Nabi al-Mukhtar alayhi salawat al-Malik al-Qahar, which is about certain spiritual dimensions of the, the Prophet's life, which has a very nice chapter. I think it's chapter three, which is about the Mi'raj. Commemoration of that, of course, is, is coming up. Jami al-Fada'il wa Qami' al-Radha'il, a collection of stories about merit in order to suppress vicious habits. And an interesting book called Habbat al-Mahabba, A Grain of, of Love, which is about the, t the three great forms of uh, religious love that he wants to talk about. Mahabbatullah, the love of God. Mahabbat al-Rasul, the different kind of love that we have for the Holy Prophet. And then Mahabbat al-Qarabat nabi love for the, the Ahl al-Bayt, the uh, family of the Prophet. It's about those three things. There's a collection of khutbas. Uh, and uh, one or two books on fiqh and aqidah. Although even though he has his academic career as well, he's not really publishing much in, in the formal world. Uh, and uh, then he has a number of books in Turkish. I mentioned the Divan, which has some Arabic poems, and I think some Persian as well, but it's, it's overwhelmingly Turkish. He has a famous Mi'rajiyya, it was the tradition in the Ottoman Empire, and in some quarters they still do this, to have, uh, just as there's a particular recital on the night of the Mawlid, on the night of the Mi'raj, they also have an assembly of adhkar and poems and things that they, they will sing. So he's written one of these Mi'raj years. Um, uh, tariqat Nameh, which is formal instruction on the practices of the Jalvati Tariqa. And then a book of his letters, the Tezakir, including some famous letters to somebody called Munir Effendi, who was based in Belgrade, um, who was the head of the, the, the scholarly hierarchy there, um, in response to various uh, questions that were people asking him. Uh, and also a book that seems to have been written for the sultans, Nasihat al-Muluk, the Husnus Suluk, uh, which means counselling the kings on... Uh, uh, meritorious or noble behavior. So it's a kind of mirror for princes book to encourage the sultan to conform to moral excellence. 
So he is buried in 1623, buried in the garden of his uh, Tekken, Iskudar, in a simple grave, and it's today one of the most popular. There's the library again. It's really a nice, nice place to visit. The library has its own cat, as you can see. I forget what it's called, but it's a really great place. That's his mosque. Um, yeah. And then, so he's buried next to there, and the uh, Teke, no longer functioning, Atatürk closed them all, and the Republicans, in their wisdom, decided that a lot of the books that they had there in the archives, well, didn't really look interesting enough to put in a museum, so they put them in the basement of the Mihrimah Sultan Mosque, which is right next to the sea. So when, in about 10 years' time, somebody said, well, maybe these are historically really important, they looked at them and they'd all become damp and destroyed and were unusable. So a lot of the records, unfortunately, were lost as a result of Turkish Republican mania. Uh, but the precious books uh, went to the uh, Selim Aga Library in uh, Üsküdar, and some of them are at the main manuscript library, Suleymaniya, uh, in Istanbul. Uh, so the Tariqa no longer functioning, and the Jelvati Tariqa is extinct. Nobody does dhikr in this nisfi qiyam form ever again. Uh, but the teke, given that uh, in recent years it's become a little bit easier to do religious things in Turkey. So I've pointed out that the iftade teke has been reopened and has a certain sacral function again, even though Sufism technically is still illegal in Turkey and the tariqas can't publicly, in the really classical way, do their thing. Uh, but you can get a lot of things done around the edges. So in 2011, they established a big waqf charity uh, which owns the land uh, and receives a lot of donations. Uh, and they've got a lot of activities, um, not just a university, which they run in Kazakhstan, uh, but uh, also a lot of uh, Qur'an courses um, and just finishing off with some of the things that the young men there do around the Islamic world. Uh, Waqf has a very big kind of humanitarian program. They were one of the first um, humanitarian aid agencies um, to deal with the Albanian earthquake, for instance. So here they are in Gaza doing an iftar. Then Idlib in Syria right now, uh, West Africa, and they're building settlements for the Rohingya in uh, refugee camps near Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. So it's interesting that the impact of this guy, even though the servant of the threshold of the void had nothing, uh, that the love that people have for these people can survive fire and pestilence and uh, political oppression to go on to serve uh, people in the way that uh, these great ones would have intended so uh, that's the end of the story, but inshallah it's a kind of emblematic window into sort of Ottoman greatness and a dimension of Islam that in our rather more formulaic and anxious times has been partly lost sight of. The mosques are still open, these places are not, and I think we're only beginning to realise how much the religion has lost as a result of the lack of interest in the inner horizon. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.